Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. On today's show, EAB's Megan Adams and Will Lamb explore growth opportunities in the graduate degree market. University leaders across America are confident in their ability to expand and capture a larger share of a graduate degree market worth tens of billions of dollars. Unfortunately, competition is stiff and many institutions lack the capacity to gather and analyze the right market intelligence to identify areas where they can compete successfully. Graduate degree programs and fields offering high paying jobs and plentiful work opportunities might look like a sure bet, they often aren't. Megan and Will both believe in the growth potential of this market, but they urge higher education leaders to proceed with caution. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Hi, everyone, and welcome to EAB's Office Hours. Uh, I will note, very different from actual office hours I used to hold at Berkeley, um, no one here is asking me for an A or for help with their latest essay, but I am uh, pleased to be joined by my colleague, Will Lamb, who used to be a dean of uh, business schools um, and is here to talk to us about uh, the future of adult and graduate education. So very excited for this conversation. Uh, well, I want to start with a question. You've been in this industry for a long time. Can, can you just talk to me about what you've seen change over the last 10 years, how institutions are investing in adult and graduate education, how the students themselves are behaving? Yeah, so one, one thing that really strikes me as I talk to schools around the country is that the when we separate out the graduate education from, say, adult the non-traditional adult degree completion audience, I see um, today a lot of schools facing issues we faced 10 years ago in the graduate space when we look at what they're doing with their undergraduate programs for non-traditional audiences. Um, I think when we look back over the last 10 years, one thing I would say is at the beginning of the decade, it was um, uh, a safer, more stable environment. And there was a much higher likelihood when I was involved in helping to create a new program that the program was going to succeed and that it was going to obtain enough students that it would be okay. And that wasn't really the concern. And so when I when I look at the difference between today and 10 years ago with the impact that new online programs have had and for profits institutions have had um, and, and some of the mega universities that are that are developing out there have had. Um, I think one of the most important themes is there's no more captive audience. It used to be you could count on a certain degree of a captive audience that wasn't going to be that hard to sell on your program. And they might not be as aware of all the options that were out there in the world. Uh, thanks to Google and the way people shop and Amazon Prime and all the other things we're learning to do in our daily lives, people are a lot more sophisticated about choices and looking at choices. So I think we've really moved from an environment where there was some stability and a fair degree of certainty to an environment that's much more dynamic and much more competitive where you really have to think about students um, as unsavory as some people may find it. You have to think about students as consumers because they've, they're, they not only have more choices, they're far more aware of those choices than they've ever been. It's so interesting. When I first started working at EAB, it was a little over six years ago, and we used to put air quotes around the word consumer on slides, and I'm starting to take down the air quotes. We yeah. just have to come around to the idea that, in fact, students are consumers, especially in the adult and grad market. 
Yeah, and I talked to a lot of folks who've let that go and their air quotes have been removed, but <laughs> but I, I still have conversations with people who need to, to take that step. And some people aren't comfortable with the word at all. Some of them are in air quotes and some of them have gotten rid of the air quotes. I think more and more of us need to do that. Yeah. yeah. Make that shift. You know, it's interesting you were talking about you know, more choices. Students have more choices than than ever. You know, I would be curious just from as you're working with different institutions, what's your sense? How many of those institutions are actively looking to expand their grad portfolio or get in, get into the grad game for the first time? Uh, an enormous percentage. I think virtually everyone's looking for growth, particularly with the stresses that everyone's living with right now. Um, I, if I had to put a number on it, and there's, there's a bit of a bias in my sample because I'm working with people who are trying right, to right. grow their programs. But uh, if I had to put a number on it, I would say at least, in my mind, at least 90% of institutions are looking to the graduate portfolio as a place to help make up some of the other financial distress that they may be under, that they're looking for sources of revenue and they're looking for growth in those programs. Really? I, so interesting. I mean, just a year ago, we did... Um, on a whim, only in EAB research, we do this on a whim, we pulled 100 strategic plans and analyzed them. And we looked at what are the top priorities and we found it was 75%. I thought that was high, 90% is, is, is mind boggling. Yeah, I, I haven't been associated with any institutions where it wasn't at least very high on someone's agenda uh, that we needed to have um, graduate growth. And I do think, yeah, I'd be curious to hear your perspective when schools are looking, based on the research you've done, when, when schools are looking for those avenues of growth, um, um, what your thought is on, you know, the best way for them to think about that. You know, I, I think the best way to think about it is in terms of margin. Um, and often I will talk to partner institutions and talk to leaders who, who really want to be innovators. And I applaud that. There, there's so many pedagogical reasons, so many mission-oriented reasons to innovate the credentials and learning experiences that they're offering. But sometimes this will lead higher education leaders down the road of going after let's grow certificates or let's grow uh, badges. Let's go for, for really small units of um, a credential. And, and while short format offers a lot more flexibility, um, the flip side of that is that it's pretty tough to generate a good margin on such a slow price point offering. Um, the other thing that we've found in our research for Blueprint for Growth is that these markets are awfully small. The, the certificate market, the graduate certificate market is just a teeny tiny, I wish I could show you via podcast the pie chart, but it is just the teeniest, tiniest sliver of the overall size of, of the adult and graduate education revenue pie. Um, you know, master's degrees are almost half of um, the overall market size. And I think that is the place to start um, for growing, uh, growing revenue in this space. The challenge, as you know, is that it's very expensive to stand up a program um, and even more expensive still to market and recruit, uh, recruit 
for that program effectively. Yeah, and one thing people forget is when you're looking at selling three to five courses in a certificate, it costs about the same amount of money to find the certificate student as it costs to find someone who's going to buy 30 credits for a master's degree. Um, and, and now the certificate students, they still could turn into master's students. And in many cases, there's a lot of overlap. Um, uh, I, I, but I, I view the certificate market as one as I'm talking to people, that's really important from a strategic perspective. I think everybody should be in that space in some way, shape, or form. But it's not. But but they need to set realistic expectations on campus about what the revenue potential is for it. It's you're not in it because of immediate revenue gains. I think you're in it because it's a test bed. It can be a place to try new material. It can be a place to learn about the market. It can be a place to get faculty thinking about new formats and new delivery modes. Um, there's ways to, to use a certificate also as a recruiting tool. It's a, the people who've taken your certificates, whether they're for credit or not, are, are a nice audience uh, to be marketing to when you do try to uh, promote your master's programs. But I agree with you wholeheartedly, the master's space if, if, the, if the goal is generating more revenue fairly quickly, taking a look at your existing portfolio and, and new programs you could consider um, would be the most important place to start, it seems to me. Yeah. What about, um, what's your take on how to generate a lot of revenue from master's degrees? Should institutions be rushing out to launch a lot of new programs? Where have you seen that succeed versus you know, when is it the right call to double down on the existing portfolio? Nearly every school we work with, there's a lot of potential in their existing portfolio uh, for improvements. So I, I, I usually spend more time talking with folks about how to make the current program offerings more competitive and you know, make sure they're stacking up against all those new choices students are finding. Um, as well as they can. And I think for many schools, many schools already have programs in the largest market spaces. And if you had a more attractive offering in those spaces, I think you'd see bigger gains than you will necessarily from um, stampeding towards new programs. I think everybody should be working on something new, but I think the, the new program should be a relatively small percentage of where you're spending the time and energy because there's there's usually gains to be made by taking a look at what you already do. Is there a magic ratio? I'm so curious. Like, is there a percentage that should be new versus existing? Um, I, uh, uh, if I have, a, say I have a portfolio that had 10 programs for ease of math, um, I wouldn't be looking for more than the one or two best new ideas I could have. Like I would not be looking to add too many things too quickly um, because I think, the, the whole process of adding something and making sure it's added in the best possible form with the right modality, with all the right options and features is a hard enough thing to do that um, I, I think uh, that, that's, a, that's a skill in itself. And it's probably better in the long term to be doing that on a more measured pace. That, that what about, now I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but what about... Um, for an institution that really wants to support regional economic development and wants to meet, say, emerging tech needs, wants to meet the needs of, uh, you know, the regional economy to make it more competitive or to support economic recovery, should the institution be chasing, hey, here's where the hot growth fields are, hey, here's where employers need the most uh, help getting highly skilled employees? 
I think the labor trends in the labor market and economic development concerns are, are really important things to think about when you're looking for the new idea. But one, one thing I would encourage people to think about is um, that you don't necessarily need a whole degree in the thing. Uh, could it be course offerings, options, flexible choices within some existing programs? Maybe it's adjusting and adapting the existing things in your portfolio to play into the economic development needs that are out there. Um, I know uh, from some of the work that you've done, you've got some interesting insights into what happens when people stampede toward certain disciplines and you know what, that, that not all markets are created equal. I wonder if you could maybe share with us a little bit about um, how you see uh, choices of which market to consider when you're thinking about the new degree? Yeah, you know, this all started kind of with a, a bit of a mystery um, that my research team on Blueprint for Growth was trying to solve. Um, we were looking at fields like, for example, cybersecurity, and mm -hmm. they seem like, hey, it's a slam dunk if you launch a program. But at the same time, you know, this is back when we used to have our partners to our offices and they'd come for meetings and we'd all sit and have lunch together. And I was sitting at a lunch table and everyone was telling me about their master's of cybersecurity program that wasn't taking off. And I thought, well, what could be going on here? Um, you know, maybe there's more with marketing recruiting we can be doing, but, but something's up. And we tried to solve the problem or the question, the mystery of, you know, if there's student demand and employer demand, where are the enrollments? As we looked more closely at some of these programs, what we realized is that you know, winner-take-all markets in some fields are already here. Um, and cybersecurity is a great example um, of, of one of those fields. And, and that's, a, that's a, a situation where you've got you know, the top 20% of competitors owning you know, over 80% of the market. Um, so there could be a stampede to a hot field, but it could be that the competition has already sewn it up. And it's, it's actually not the opportunity that it looks like on paper when you're looking only at student demand and only employer demand in isolation. I think that goes right back to your question about economic development. You can get pulled into something uh, that, that somebody knows they have a need. From a business perspective, they have a need for skills, but that doesn't automatically mean there's a market for a full program in the space. Um, that you're going to be able to fulfill the, you know, the demand for. Absolutely. And, you know, the interesting thing about cybersecurity is the way that those competitors, those top competitors got big is they had great employer partnership networks and partnerships with the military. And they were really able to build those B2B pipelines before anyone else. Yeah. And some of those spaces too, um, there are some early mover advantages. I know I've, I've worked with institutions where they had an alum after 9-11 who was in that space, the cybersecurity space or the intelligence space, and gave some advice. You know, if I if you could get me some people with these kinds of skills, I need as many as I can get. Where the school moved quickly, and because they moved quickly, they've got a place in that market, but where it's very hard for anyone else. I, I've had the same experience you've had talking to schools who just can't understand why they can't get past four or five students in in a program in some of these spaces. You know, and it's a fair question because on paper, it does look like a great idea. We did some analysis and in, in, in the three big fields, business, healthcare, and education, around 30% of programs don't have any more than five conferrals annually. Isn't that amazing? So it's, it's not just, you know, some, some of these more defined fields uh, like cybersecurity, but um, in the big three, we're seeing this as well. 
yeah, there's a supply and demand problem in some ways for graduate education that never that didn't seem to exist before. And that kind of goes back to the very first question you asked that, you know, um, uh, it, it used to be there was going to be enough demand that anything you launched would be okay. And it's just not that way anymore. So, Will, what's the solution? How do you outfox the competition? How do you how do you win in this kind of market? It's you know it's saturated, but really the big threat is concentration. What's what's the secret? Yeah, I tell think, everyone the secret. <laughs> right. Uh, I think actually um, uh, having a clear sense of what the table stakes are in a particular space is really important. That you, you can't just do something because you think this is the way a program should be structured full stop, that you really have to take a hard look at what others are offering in the space. You have to do some benchmarking, you have to look at the competition uh, and think about how you can build something that allows the faculty to do whatever it is that's distinctively their own, uh, but within, within a framework that makes sense to the prospective student. Uh, and that's one of my favorite words for all of this is flexibility. I think we do ourselves a great disservice when we're building programs with all required courses, you know, with clear cut <laughs> structures that can't be easily changed because of governance on campus. Um, to the extent, one of the first things I look at when I'm looking at people's programs is I look at the electives. How many electives are there? And what kinds of choices do those electives give the prospective student? Is there some way for lots of different pods of people to find the program interesting and valuable because they can satisfy their, their unique mix of needs with whatever it is that you're offering. If you have a 36 credit program that's 12 courses you take in a preset order and there's no electives, um, you end up just calving away. You think about an iceberg, you keep chopping off chunks of the iceberg as people drift towards programs that do give them what they want. Um, not everyone wants to do your thing your way. They're looking to do your thing their own way. Okay, well, so what's the golden ratio of electives to required courses? <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you want me to reveal? That's, that's, I feel like I shouldn't, I shouldn't let my secret out of the bag on that. I, I actually think as much flexibility as you can give people is good. Um, I, think, I think it's a travesty if you don't have at least, say, 30% of your courses where the student gets some choice. But I have to say, one, um, one program uh, that I was involved with, we went from uh, uh, 14 required courses with no choices to a model that was a four course core and lots of, and then people could put package the other courses any way they wanted to. I think that, that was a much more popular model. Um, you know, I'm, I'm having a flashback right now um, to about how many years? I don't, I don't want to think about how many years ago when I was choosing between graduate schools and I went to one of them, um, very elite, excellent program. I was honored to be admitted. And I remember sitting down with the person who's going to be my advisor. And he said in, you know, uh, year one, you're gonna take these classes and learn this canon. Year two, you're gonna learn this, that, the other. Um, and just, you know, ticked out, like showed me the shelf of books I was going to read. And that was the plan. And, and you know, he really thought he was painting me a vision of, um, the wonderful things I would learn. And to a certain extent, he was. Then I went to Berkeley and it was kind of like, well, you know, you're going to read these things and you're going to get to choose among these courses. We really want you to explore. We really want you to develop your own interests um, and pursue your own questions. And that's why I chose Berkeley. 
Actually, you're bringing back a memory. And when I was get, picking doctoral programs, I had a similar experience at Virginia Tech where they had a very unique structure to the program. And you, you were in the field of management, but you were either going to be categorized as a micro person or a macro person. And whichever focus you picked, the structure of the curriculum was three, two, one. And you picked which thing you took three of, which you took two of, and which you took one of. So they had each sphere of study but you got to you got to choose your weights and that was a huge part of why i was excited to go there i could imagine putting together the program that spoke to me and i think that's true for prospective students today they do see a lot of options where they get to have some agency in saying this is the story i want to tell about my degree when i get finished and um, um, i think it, having been a faculty for member for more than 20 years there's just a um, a dangerous temptation to, to try and get everyone else to take the courses exactly the way you would take them and, and to follow your, your strict vision for things. Now, some disciplines don't have a lot of flexibility. They're going for licensure. They've got strict requirements. There's prerequisites that have to be done in a particular order because of the nature of the discipline. But that's one of the, I think that's a good, a good place for some soul searching. Is your discipline one where there are actually three or four things that are at the foundation of everything and lots of pathways that people could take uh, that could be different. Yeah, let's not the, let the physician's assistants uh, choose their own adventure when it comes to their curriculum. Right. I think in some fields, you're stuck. There's no way yep. around it. But I <laughs> no exploration. In some fields, um, uh, places I've been, a lot of the most interesting things the faculty are doing are in the elective pool. That's where you try out new ideas. You test to see if students are interested in a topic. And, um, uh, you know, the degrees of the future are probably some course that a faculty member is cooking up in your elective pool. If you have no elective pool, you're, you're cutting off an important source of innovation for the whole curriculum. What a great, what a great takeaway for anyone who is trying to launch a new program or revitalize an existing program. You know, put faculty innovation at the center of what you're doing. Um, make it less about requirements, make it less about, you know, the traditions of the discipline and really make it about you know, where is the most creative thought happening at your institution. Yeah. And open, basically opening things up in a sense, trusting, trusting people's judgment. And that that's maybe that's a difference from 10 years ago, 15 years ago versus today. Um, uh, I think smart schools have folks who are learning to trust the prospective student. They, they're, they have, they have goals they're assertively pursuing. So trust their judgment, give them some choice and then trust their judgment about exactly how they wanna proceed through a program. I think that's a good, a good rule in general. So this has been all very aspirational and um, wonderful. I, I wanna just add a, maybe a dose of, of realism to the conversation. What can a school that's trying to, and you know, maybe we'll put some boundaries around, you know, how big is this school, but you know, what are the realistic goals? Um, and how do you know when a school has set, an institution has set an unrealistic goal for graduate growth? What are the, what are the telltale signs, Will? Um, uh, one of the telltale signs is how big is the goal? I think you actually have some data, don't you, on what what people's goals are versus what's really happening in the marketplace. So I, I, I'd, I'd be curious as a, as, a, as a starting point to answering that question, maybe, maybe it'd be good to give people a dose of some market realism based on what we see out there in the space. 
when we started to categorize the market and look at what are the different types of competition, we set a threshold for what constitutes um, a large number of students in a program. And that threshold for large is 20 conferrals annually, 20. Um, that's a big program. Now that's across the board, um, all, all master's programs, um, but I was surprised to see it so low, um, especially when we talk to institutions that have big goals of, hey, we're going to uh, enroll hundreds and hundreds of students in a given program. The other point of reference that I'll give you is that we also analyzed, um, this is the work of my colleague, Brian Schuler, uh, who is a senior analyst on the Blueprint for Growth team. He analyzed um, you know, just how many online graduate students do institutions have? And for half, they're enrolling 152 online graduate students or less. And for most of them, it is a lot less than 152. Um, so the numbers, you know, triple digit enrollment Enrollment growth just simply isn't the reality for, for most institutions. Well, and, and you asked, in your question, you asked, what, what would I see that's an alarm bell or a yellow light uh, when I'm talking to somebody? And um, I, it's pretty, you can tell fairly quickly if a school is being realistic about their goals based on um, what they're proposing to offer the prospective student. So you see people with aggressive goals who don't have um, uh, flexible modalities, for instance, or don't have their online approach up to date, or don't have a, a mix a, a mix of offerings that offer the size market that makes it possible to do what they're um, proposing to do. I just think that um, everyone's still learning to be in a more business-like frame of mind when they're putting programs together. And, and there's a disconnect sometimes between um, what I'd like to have happen because my institution needs X to occur and what I have to put in place for X to be possible. So here, here's a question for you as a former business school dean. How, do you notice that business schools are better at this? Are they better at marketing, recruiting their programs? Are they better at aligning their programs to uh, market need, or are they better understanding and reading the competition, or do they need the same help that that everybody else does? They need a lot of the same help that everybody else does. I think that um, it's probably true at many schools that the business faculty are more amenable to some of the market-driven facts of life uh, than 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 other members of the faculty. But that's that's um, you know that's not uh, uh, etched in stone. It's not de a definite fact across all schools. But I do think, I think the um, professional disciplines also, you know, you think, look at pharmacy and law schools and some of the health sciences, you have people tied to the profession who are used to interacting with folks who are hiring their students um, where there's a discrete profession that has particular needs and where you're regularly hearing about changes and adjustments in those needs. And I think that, that pulls you to being more market savvy. If you're in a field where your students could go in a lot of different directions after they complete the degree, it's a little harder to have that tangible reminder that maybe something in the program needs to be reevaluated. Yeah. In business law and some of the other professional fields, it's it, you're, it happens more naturally. That makes sense. Yep. Um, I know you've got a new set of intelligence reports that's exciting a lot of people's, you know, market insights. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about 
what those reports are and how they could help somebody who's navigating? Yeah, so we, um, we've been thinking a lot, as you know, about this question of competition and market concentration um, and, and what are the best big opportunities. And so originally we had this idea, hey, let's go just run the report on what are the 10 biggest master's degrees fields in every state. And I thought, won't that be valuable? Every institution could take a look at their master's portfolio, look at what's big in the state and say like, hey, are we playing where, uh, where, the, big, uh, where, the, where the big opportunities are? Well, the thing is, we, we, ran, we ran the numbers. And as the numbers came back, we looked at both national and state level competition. And the thing that I was surprised to see um, we'd already done some analysis on, on national competition, so that wasn't as surprising. I was surprised by the level of state competition. And for so many of these large fields, the top three, not a percentage, but the top three institutions in the state conferring, conferring degrees in that field um, owned the vast majority of the market to the point where it's hard to recommend launching a program in that field as necessarily a big opportunity. We still show all that data in these reports. We show the largest fields. We show the national market concentration. How much does winner take all apply? We also show how much does winner take all apply in uh, at the state level. And then we, we also show the growth trajectory. Hey, how much of the, how much has this field been growing or declining you know, over the past five years or so? Um, so we do that for the largest fields, but because so many of the, of the fields were so competitive, we also created another kind of ranking, we call our opportunity score ranking. And we look at what are the best fields to launch new programs in, in terms of competition and growth and size. Um, and that yielded in some cases a very different list than what the largest opportunities are. And so every institution um, can go right now, on, you can go on eab.com, Type into the search bar, this is a lot to say, Master's Market Competitive Intelligence Report, and you'll see a list of all the states. If you're from a teeny tiny state, you get a regional report, um, and you can download uh, the data for your state or region um, right now in a report that you can forward along to whoever needs it um, on campus. And look right now at, um, hey, how well does our portfolio line up with not only the largest fields in the state, but the best opportunities in the state? Where do we still have room to grow? Um, and where are opportunities actually maybe a little more limited than we might have thought? So a good way to put some boundaries around growth ambition, but also to look at, hey, here's the possibilities. Uh, it's a crowded market, it's a competitive market, but there's still a chance for us to earn some significant revenue here. Yep, that's uh, that's uh, an exciting resource to have. I think um, uh, hopefully people, um, when they're, when they're able to look at a resource like that, it helps uh, reduce the likelihood that they're just chasing the thing they know people talk about a lot in the market uh, and they take a more critical eye. To you know, it's interesting, we, we've, been, we've been talking about faculty a lot in this conversation. And you know, one of the uses that I've heard for these reports is to give faculty, hey, here are the list of fields where you can look to launch a new program instead of bringing each and every idea. It's let's innovate within these parameters and kind of using it as a guardrail for some of those those conversations. Well, there's this balancing that act that has to occur between market discipline and what we're actually good at. Where do we have the resources and the capabilities and the history to be able to succeed without having to reinvent 
ourselves completely. You know, how, how do I trade off sticking to the things I already do well versus some of these new opportunities that are out there? And having some hard data, I think, could help people have a good discussion about which of these opportunities do we actually stand a chance to be um, a really successful competitor? And which ones do we not? I think that uh, perfectly sums it up well. Well, thanks for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Have a great afternoon. You too. Or evening or morning. <laughs> Time has lost all meaning. <laughs> thank you for listening. We have a special episode coming up next week that features a book discussion between EAB's Sally Amoruso and noted author Nathan D. Graw. Dr. Graw is perhaps best known for his 2018 book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, a book that continues to strike fear in the hearts of admission leaders everywhere. The two will talk about Nathan's new book that looks at how proactive institutions are preparing for the demographic challenges that lie ahead. Thanks again for listening and join us next week on Office Hours with EAB.